Well, good evening, everybody. So I will be continuing on in Psalm 119. The sermon title for tonight is The Good That God Accomplishes in Affliction. The Good That God Accomplishes in Affliction. So if you'll turn with me to Psalm 119, we're reading verses 65 through 72. Again, that's Psalm 119, verses 65 through 72. And if you get to there in your Bibles, you can stand. Please do so. We'll read God's Word together. It's Psalm 119, verses 65 to 72. <clears throat> the psalmist David writes, Lord, you have treated your servant well, just as you promised. Teach me good judgment and discernment, for I rely on your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good, and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have smeared me with lies, but I obey your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are hard and insensitive, but I delight in your instruction. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I could learn your statutes. Instruction from your lips is better for me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the word that you've given us, Lord, to help our hearts and minds uh, to be steered to the path of truth, Lord. We thank you for your spirit to... Uh, enlighten your truth to us, Lord, to open up our hearts and minds so we can see your word as your word, not man's word, but your word. Lord. So tonight, we ask for you to impress upon our hearts and minds your words, that way, that way we may walk in righteousness, Lord, seeking after you, and ultimately to glorify you, Lord. So we thank you for tonight, and thank you for our time together, and we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I have heard it said by many confessing Christians that human suffering isn't part of God's plan. Now, this statement intrigues me because when I read the Bible, that is not the impression that I walk away with. Such a statement astonishes me in that the whole of Scripture is filled with God's people suffering. In fact, the pinnacle of such suffering is the Son of God. The Son of God, God's Son, His beloved Son, He came to suffer. And Scripture tells us God delivered him up according to his determined plan and foreknowledge. He appointed the death of his son by the hands of Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel. What good did God accomplish in sending his son to live, suffer, and die? The book of Hebrews says that it was for the joy that lay before him that he endured the cross. Why was that good? Well, the full-orbed answer is that it was for the glory of God. Christ went to the cross to pay our sin debt and reconcile us to God. God gets glory in canceling our debt in Christ. Thus, he can be the just and the justifier, freely extending grace and mercy according to his divine wisdom. But what about individual suffering? What good does that accomplish? As we will see, affliction or suffering, but I'm going to use affliction, is the path the Lord has for those whom he has made his sons and daughters. The inheritance he has secured for us in heaven is retrieved along the same path Christ took, and that is the path to life with God. At this point in the psalm, David introduces the theme of affliction. 
Now, the prior passages revealed to us that David was enduring oppression from his enemies and inner turmoil from his own sin. But here we come to see that his afflictions were brought about by the Lord, which David sees that it was good for him. So let's begin with verse 65. David writes, Lord, you have treated your servant well, just as you promised. In verse 58, which I preached out last time, David asked that the Lord be gracious to him according to his promise. What is this promise? Well, literally, it is according to your word. The Hebrew actually says according to your word, but we also put the translation as his promise. Now, verse 41 provides further details. David says, let your faithful love come to me, Lord, your salvation as you promised, or according to your word. God's faithful love to David grounded in his covenant blessings to him, is his salvation. At this point in the chapter, David says, God has fulfilled that promise. For all that David has done and the sins that he has committed, the Lord has treated him well. While God has been faithful to his covenant with David, there is a broader principle at work here, which applies to all of us, the promise of blessing. We can see it contrasted in Psalm 1 which shows two ways of life, the wicked and the righteous. And I'll read it for you. Psalm 1. The psalmist writes, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. That's the end of the psalm. The Lord will watch over the righteous those who delight in and meditate on his word and walk in his ways. But as we will see, it is through affliction that one is kept on the path of the Lord, on the path of righteousness. In verse 66, David says, Teach me good judgment and discernment, for I rely on your commands. Again, if you've been following along in my preaching through Psalm 119, you'll see this common theme presented again here in this passage where David needs the Lord to teach him his ways. Here he asks for good judgment and discernment. Now, what is the difference between the two? In the Hebrew, the word translated as good judgment is literally goodness of taste that applies to the mind. David is asking to have a taste that prefers that which is morally good. It reminds me of what Jesus said in John 3.19 when speaking of the judgment to come. He writes, The light has come into the world And people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Their love for darkness is a preference, a taste for evil. Their moral taste buds delight in evil deeds. But David wants a taste for the good, pure, and holy things. If his desires prefer that which is good, he will make good judgments. And discernment, as the other word, is understanding or knowledge. One gains knowledge or understanding through perception, learning, and reasoning. David wants to gain knowledge from God. And David wants goodness of taste and knowledge imparted from God so he can discern right from wrong. 
And therefore, having such discernment allows him to see God's commands as good and righteous, and he can rely on them for guidance. But how does God teach him these things? In verse 67, David writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. This is a profound passage. It is a passage that you won't see printed on a coffee mug or a t-shirt. David is telling us that affliction is what kept him on the path of righteousness. While he knew the word of the Lord, it was affliction that brought him to keep the word of the Lord. The Hebrew word translated affliction means to be bowed down or to be humbled. David didn't humble himself or bow down himself. He was brought down by God. Listen to Proverbs 19.3. It says, A person's own foolishness leads him astray, yet his heart rages against the Lord. So for David, he was following foolishness. He was following the path of his heart, raging against the Lord in his rebellion by his sinful actions. His sinful rebellion led him away, and it was only by the supernatural grace of God that smashed his pride and stamped out his rebellious heart. Fallen man refuses to hear and receive the good word of the Lord. He doesn't desire it. He cannot discern it. He cannot cannot submit to it. John Calvin writes, So as long as we are rebellious against God, we are in a state of the deepest wretchedness. Now, the only means by which he bends and tames us to obedience is his instructing us by his chastisements or afflictions. But God does humble us in various ways, through poverty, shame, disease, domestic distress, hard and painful labors, spiritual turmoil, lots of other ways that the Lord humbles us. But Scripture tells us that one must become like a child, considering himself as one who knows nothing, who comes seeking knowledge, seeking to understand. Now, when you listen to David's words in this psalm, He actually sounds childlike in his requests and his needs. Now, a child, in some sense, is a blank canvas. And that canvas is colored by the child's inclinations, experiences, influences. You see, the fallen heart is disposed to sinful desires. Excuse me. While born sinful, children have an innocence about them that we want to preserve and impress upon that which is righteous, holy, and good. However, as they get older... They become more aware of the world and the fleshly desires. Scripture is very clear on raising children according to the Lord's ways, which include instruction and discipline, giving us a warning as to the consequences if we do not raise them in the fear of the Lord. But humility is becoming like a blank canvas to the Lord, in which one must examine himself, his experiences, his influences, understandings about life, humanity, and the world, and realize He does not know how to paint. He must come to God and hand him the paintbrush so that the Lord can fill his canvas with that which is truly beautiful. See, the struggle will be wanting to take the paintbrush back. And not only that, the world will look also at the canvas that God has painted on and they will scoff at it. They will not see it as beautiful, but rather as absurd. It will be the ugliest painting they have ever seen, judging that it should be incinerated or thrown into a garbage dump. The ridicule from the world and the inner turmoil one experiences will at times be unbearable, where all one can do is cry out to the Lord, saying, 
as we read in Psalm 119, 36, 37. He says, Turn my heart to your decrees. Decrees. Turn my eyes from looking at what is worthless. Give me life in your ways. And that is what God does with all of his sons and daughters whom he loves. He disciplines them through affliction. A suffering through war between the spirit and the flesh. And through affliction, one learns the knowledge of God's ways. The book of Hebrews chapters 12 verses 10 and 11 tell us that he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we see that affliction leads to learning about God. While painful, the Lord's training us through affliction produces in us a taste for the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And in that affliction, affliction, David says in verse 68, You are good, and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. Now this follow-up passage provides us a a rejoinder to verse 67, and that the world doesn't associate affliction with goodness, particularly a good and loving God afflicting his creatures. We also get to see that David understands that his affliction is from God. Now many will say that God would never afflict his children, so the struggles and trials of life just happen. And so our suffering is just a, a a product of fate. Bad things just happen, right? But David is seeing that the goodness of God in afflicting himself. David says two things about God. He says he is good and does what is good. He reaffirms that God is goodness itself, thus whatever he does is good. God's actions are never not good. The afflictions God brings to us, upon us, are always for our benefit. He doesn't have some ill-conceived purpose to watch us squirm and suffer to satisfy some sadistic desire. Many today do not believe in God because they cannot reconcile Scripture's teaching that God is good and in control of everything, yet the world is full of evil, and yet it seems he does nothing about it. But the reality is we cannot reconcile those two things here and now. David doesn't try to. Rather, he sees that God is good for bringing about affliction in his life because through it, he learned that God's word gives life. God's word gives life. For David, affliction actually gladdens him, teaching him to cherish and revel in God's laws. And what does he say right after saying God is good and does what is good? He says, teach me your statutes. Notice he doesn't ask God to provide comforts or riches for him. Rather, he wants to know God's law better. He he wants to know God more deeply. Because only in God will one endure to the end. The things of the world will pass away, but the Lord will remain forever. And verse 69 emphasizes David's desire for God through affliction, that he says, The arrogant have smeared me with lies, but I obey your precepts with all my heart. As one commentator writes, quote, the connection of the clauses, these two sentences together, is that all the craft and malice of his enemy should only lead him to obey God with a more undivided heart than ever. David had many enemies, which no doubt contributed to his affliction. But David shows his resolve in the Lord in that their smear campaign only drove David to obey the Lord with greater, greater fervency. 
You see, the more the villainy of the world presses in, the more David finds comfort in the promises of the Lord. The sons of perdition enjoy their reward only in this life. However, our crown is laid up in heaven. We cling to the Lord until then, for our lives are hidden with Christ and God. And when he appears, Scripture says, then you will also appear with him in glory. In verse 70, David draws out the stark contrast between himself and the arrogant. He writes, their hearts are hard and insensitive, but I delight in your instruction. More literally, the the psalmist says that the hearts of the arrogant are callous and fat. Callous and fat. The arrogant are insolent against David due to a grossness that has overgrown their hearts, and they become callous, which means they've become unfeeling to spiritual things. And so while the Lord's instruction gladdens the heart of the righteous, it only hardens the hearts of the wicked. But that is not to say that the hearts of the wicked were, were sensitive to the laws of God and the precepts of God, and then God hardened them from belief. Rather, as mentioned already, every human heart is already hardened in sin. And it is only through the sovereign grace of God that he removes the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh that delights in the Lord's instruction. Verse 71, David says, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I could learn your statutes. Here David confirms what he stated previously, this time more closely linking the goodness of God's affliction upon David, resulting in him learning God's ways. Again, we see that suffering from a biblical perspective has a good purpose. And we can see this confirmed and supported by Romans 8.28, which many of us know, where Paul says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. When we look at Israel's history, we see a pattern of affliction the Lord brought about to his people because of their sinful ways, their sinful idolatry. He sent them prophets to call them from their unfaithful ways. But their preaching hardened Israel's calloused and fat hearts, and they spurned the good graces of God. So the nation as a whole learned God's statutes when he afflicted them by handing them over to the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They were taken from their land and placed under captivity. In fact, we see an interesting parallel in 2 Corinthians 10.5 when Paul writes, We demolish arguments in every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. The interesting parallel here is that the Israelites did not take their thoughts captive to obey the Lord. So they were taken captive in order to obey the Lord. But David was humbled so that he could learn God's statutes. Another way to understand this passage is we see from Martin Luther is that he says, It is good that you, God, took my wisdom away from me so that you might give me yours. The difference between David and Israel is that David was humbled by God's grace, whereas Israel was humbled by God's judgment. But through it, God's grace preserved a remnant from Israel so that his promise to David would be fulfilled. I would rather be humbled by God's grace than his judgment because affliction through grace is intended to bring about repentance, whereas affliction through judgment brings condemnation and further hardening. Furthermore, afflictions shape us into Christ-likeness. Scripture says in Hebrews 5, 8-9, Although he was the Son, 
He learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Jesus, in his human nature, learned obedience in submitting to the Father unto death, having tasted death for everyone, unlike Adam, who succumbed to his inclinations of self-interest, and he plunged humanity into sin and rebellion. In his suffering, Christ is said to be perfected, having endured the cross and death, being consecrated into his priesthood, and thus sanctifying himself for the elect. Now, Christ didn't learn to obey, for he knew the commands of God. Rather, he learned obedience in experiencing it, in undergoing the afflictions of the flesh, patiently enduring them, and in faith for deliverance from them. And through this, he obtained righteousness for us before God, having removed the rebellion of Adam, and thus establishing himself as the great high priest, becoming the source of salvation for all who obey him. David learned obedience through his affliction to gain the benefit of knowing God in his grace, thus experiencing his faithful love as the Lord promised. In David's affliction, the Lord provided light and grace, gradually instructing David in the knowledge and practice of obedience to the Lord's precepts. And that is what he does for us. In Hebrews 12.3, the author writes, For consider him, speaking of Christ, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. So you won't grow weary and give up. So the suffering Christ went through was for our benefit, not only to pay for our sin, but so that we won't give up our faith when we are afflicted. Because he did it and made us one with him through grace, we too can conquer all temptations. As a fellow sufferer with David and the rest of the Lord's children, I see that the affliction of the Lord has been good for me, personally. I know the scriptures, but I really came to understand the scriptures, better understand God's grace, when the trials and afflictions it speaks about became a reality. He said that the Lord strips away all earthly wisdom and inclinations toward handling this problem, dealing with the affliction. But the world doesn't understand because the afflictions Christians go through, the world does not. Whereas a Christian goes through inner turmoil of the heart, struggling against the temptations of the flesh, the world sees such temptations as natural to man. So those in the world don't have a war going on inside. Rather, they let the passions of the flesh have their way. For me, the only path that I can take is the one the Lord provides. By God's grace, the Spirit of God within me, though at war with the flesh, impresses upon my heart the Lord's path leads to life, whereas the path of the flesh leads only to death. And this is what God's grace does. It reveals the path of life, which is to live in the presence of the Lord, having eternal pleasures forevermore. Therefore, knowing that it was what God promised for me, I continue forward toward the upward call in Christ. See, church, God has provided for us spiritual armor, but we must put it on. Reading and applying scripture, prayer, meditation, fellowship, accountability, gospel-centered preaching are the means that God has given us to endure. When the Lord brings affliction to your life, these things become your lifeline. And thus through it, you learn God's statutes. You draw closer to him because he provides a way out, which we can bear only through his grace. But you may be asking yourself, 
what does this look like for me? Some of you are dealing with losing a loved one. Maybe your child is sick. You're dealing with chronic pain. You lost your job. Your spouse left. Or you're struggling with temptation and sin. Some sort of spiritual affliction, or sorry, some sort of spiritual or physical affliction is going on in your life, and you are trying to make some sense out of why it's happening and why its purpose. In 2009, I took up running, and it became a passion of mine. I ate, slept, and breathed running. Sounds kind of crazy, but I did. My goal was to compete in marathons and ultra marathons. But one day on a 20-mile run, I was at mile 19, one mile away from my truck, and I felt a deep stabbing pain in both my feet. Left me hobbling all the way back to my truck. From that day on, my running days were basically over. I went from running to sitting. It was terrible. I was on the couch with ice packs on my feet with a TENS unit hooked up to it. I went to physical therapy for six weeks, but nothing helped. So I ended up having nerve damage in my feet. I was very depressed. I'd always been an active person. It was torture to walk at work. But it got so bad, I ended up laying down on a pallet at work one day. I could no longer move. I could no longer walk. Ultimately, I was diagnosed with neuropathy of the feet and was prescribed medicine, which allowed me to go back to work, allowed me to actually walk. But since I was on the couch most of the time, I thought when I was home, I began reading novels. Now, I'm not a reader, but I'd only read running books and magazines or any kind of hobby I was engaged in. I would read things about that. I think most men are like that. So reading novels was quite a huge change. My wife took the opportunity that I was reading and asked me to read a book she got for free called One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. See, when she got it, it opened her eyes to the importance of sharing the gospel with others. Now, looking back in 2009, I would say that I wasn't a genuine believer. I was an idolater. I was addicted to running and whatever hobby I had before. I went to church, but I wasn't really engaged. In fact, my Bible was a paraphrased version called The Message. And I would read it out of duty not out of a desire to know Christ. But once I read the book my wife gave me, everything changed. I finally heard the true gospel. The Lord awakened in me a fire for his glory like never before. I diverted my time and my attention to studying his word, evangelism, apologetics, more fellowship, Bible studies. I immediately entered Bible college and spent the next 10 years in college and seminary. In 2016, I became a pastor, and here I am still today by his grace. I look back on that day of tragedy when my running life was brought to a screeching halt. And I see that the Lord afflicted me so that I would get on the right running path. I still have nerve pain in my feet. I cannot run. I cannot stand in one spot for very long. But by God's grace, my feet never bother me when I preach. But when I'm on my feet for hours on end, it feels like I have elephants standing on my feet. But it is constant affliction that I wouldn't trade for the obedience I learned through it and continue to do so. I see people running and I daydream about what it would be like to run again, but I'm quickly reminded of my heart. I'm reminded of how I was plunged into idolatry and the Lord brought me down to humble me. The affliction I still have is a reminder of God's grace. And I can honestly say with David that it is good to be afflicted. Many of you know what my wife deals with. Her affliction is severe and unrelenting. 
But she knows that if she didn't have the chronic facial pain she has, her life would have been more about the world and herself rather than for others and for God's glory. She has seen over 20 doctors and has tried every remedy, procedure, and treatment out there for her condition, but nothing ever helps. The only thing that helps is relying on Christ. She must rely on God's grace, resting in the moments of mercy he gives her day by day. And through her, through her affliction, the Lord has given her a compassion for others she never had before. And the Lord has blessed her greatly in the women's ministry that she leads, and people around the country have been blessed by her book she published called Don't Waste Your Pain. While her affliction can be quite consuming, she can say with David that it is good to be afflicted. One last story, which many of you know about is Pastor Steve's mother. She had a stroke many years ago. At the time, she would come to church on her own, but when she had the stroke, she could not drive herself. Steve's dad started taking her, and he wasn't a believer at this time. He would just drop her off and sit in the car, but eventually he started to come in with her. And over time, he started to hear the gospel. And then he became a believer, and Steve had to baptize his dad. See, her affliction, her affliction of having a stroke, losing her memory, dealing with all that, led Steve's dad to hearing the gospel and getting saved. In church, there is story after story of God's working in and through affliction. We could find so many throughout church history, and that is, that is how God works. If affliction is merely a product of fate, then God isn't in control, and your suffering is purposeless. But because we know, as Scripture says in Philippians 1.29, that it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Yes, that is in Scripture. It has been granted to you as a gift, not only to believe, but to suffer for him. Again, another passage you will not find on a t-shirt. What does that tell us about Christ? It says we have hope. It says that hope in Christ will carry us all the way to glory. So again, I read Romans 28. It tells us that God works all things. That includes your afflictions, your pain, your trials, your sinful choices, and the consequences you're dealing with for that sin, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. How glorious is that? Since Christ was the first fruits, the forerunner of the faith to glory through affliction, we need to see affliction as the means of God making us more like him. You want to be with Christ? You take the path that he took, which is affliction. The path to glory is through the cross, and we are all called to share in it with our Savior. So church, we don't see affliction as punishment. We see it as God disciplining his children whom he loves. Therefore, we are to listen to his instruction, for in it we have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge guiding us through this fallen world to glory. And thus, we, we can agree with David, what he says in verse 72. He says, instruction from your lips is better for me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Wisdom from the Lord outweighs worldly riches. Social media and television have given us glimpses into the lives of the rich and the famous and also the not-so-rich and famous. 
And what do we see? We see people living according to the passions of the flesh. So many people live under a cloud of unrest that never seems to leave them. They continue to pursue the vanities of the world, acquiring more and more, but never having enough. They soak their sorrows bottle after bottle, trying to numb themselves from all their problems. They want to escape reality for some sense of solace. But even then, because their hearts follow them wherever they go, solace is fleeting. However, both types of people follow the same pattern of life. The rich or the poor, it doesn't matter. All humanity follows this pattern of life. Those chasing after riches are guided by the false notion that riches will profit a soul of a man. But they only intensify man's idolatry and greed, giving everyone and everything a back seat to man's ambition for glory. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, 35, he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This means that all that which is of the world will not endure to eternity. The word of the Lord, to use David's phrase, the instructions from your lips will outlast all earthly goods. And one can only come to understand that when all the earthly goods, goods, the comforts, ideologies, philosophies, are exposed for what they are, insufficient to endure this life. Insufficient to endure this life. The only way to endure through affliction is by obeying the instruction of the Lord. We all get older. Our days are numbered. If you live long enough, you will suffer. Who or what will you turn to? I tell you to turn to to that which endures forever, the word of the Lord, our Savior. When you're feeling downtrodden and overwhelmed by sin and suffering, follow what Paul says in Philippians 4, 4 through 8. I'm going to read that here for you. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And if you know Paul, he was a man who lived through constant affliction. But he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That is such a comforting passage. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Not maybe, will. Will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Dwell on these things. This is instruction from the Lord. This is instruction that is better than a thousand pieces of gold or silver. There is nothing in this world, nothing, sorry, there's nothing this world can offer that trumps the wisdom of God. Through it, you will endure and you will have peace in him. I hope you can see the good that God accomplished in affliction. But if you're not a believer, you're not going to see that. You may hear the words that I'm saying. You maybe see it in the Bible. 
but the heart will not grasp it. The mind will not concede to it. The answer for that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The answer to that issue is the Spirit of God changing your heart and your mind. You must be humbled to go to the cross. You must be humbled by the Spirit of God. So look at yourself. Examine yourself. You know your heart. You know your mind. God sees those things. He calls you to repent of that, to lay it all down, to receive Christ as that gift. That gift that Paul said was granted to those. But no, with that gift is granted also to suffer. The suffering is granting as a gift. The suffering is gift. Make sure you see that the suffering is the gift that comes with salvation. There is no salvation apart from suffering. It goes together. So if you are not suffering in this world, if there's no affliction arising within your spirit, maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you are giving in to the things of this world and that temptation has gone away. That affliction is no longer there because why? You've taken the paintbrush back. You want to do your own thing. And many fall away because why? The Christian life costs you something. It costs you what feels good in the flesh. It costs you your comforts. It costs you the things of this world that you like. The things that drive you. So in order to see the goodness of God and that grace, you must repent of your sins. You must receive Christ as glorious. You must see he is the creator of heaven and earth who has made you, made you in his image. But you're living a life of rebellion. And only he can change your heart. So repent and believe the gospel. Let us pray.